Uh, one of the things that you'll hear us say pretty often is, uh, this is always on, on Sunday mornings, a safe place to be after the best week that you've ever had. It's also a safe place to be after the worst week you've ever had. I, I had a friend um, who at one point in his life got himself into some trouble uh, at, at a bar and he got into a fight and so he got put in jail for the night and after he sobered up, they, they let him out of jail and he thought to himself, I think, I think rock bottom is about the time that people go to church. And so on his way out of jail, he decided like, I think I'm gonna look up a church because I've never been so low in my life. He ended up getting connected to a church and then God did some pretty powerful things in his life. I always feel like this is a really safe place if that's the kind of week that you've had. It's also a safe place where having a great week and celebrating a lot of things, this is also a safe place to be that particular person as well. Uh, I think it's probably fair to say uh, that you come in here with a bracket that is absolute trash. Uh, by this point, there is, uh, I think, uh, over 22 million brackets that were filled out on ESPN, and at the end of day, or at the end of round one, there were zero that were fully correct, and that has only continued to get worse. So uh, regardless of how you walk in here, you'll hear us repeat a lot. This is a, this is a safe place um, for you to be really glad that you're here. Uh, let, me, let me catch us up a little bit about where we've been and, and ultimately where we're going. We, we are in a series in the book of Acts. You, you need to know for this morning really nothing about the book of Acts to still be able to engage, and I think for God to do some powerful things. But why we're in the book of Acts is because we think there are people that are in this particular book in your Bible um, that God uses in powerful ways, that he transforms in powerful ways. There are actually people and stories that we want to influence who we are as people. And there's also movements of the message of Jesus that we want to influence our lives and our church and our city. And so over a few month stretch, we're gonna be tracing some things out in the book of Acts. Now, since Jesus was killed, he, he's killed in Jerusalem and then right on the heels of that, the book of Acts and the events in there start to take place and move forward. And what's happening really early here after Jesus is killed is the message of who Jesus is, what he's done for humanity, and what that can mean for you in particular is starting to spread rapidly. And what's interesting is this is not a bunch of followers of Jesus who are being added into this movement Followers of Jesus are being multiplied into this movement. And what I mean by that is there are people who are not just saying yes to Jesus and forgiveness of sins. These are people who are now becoming ambassadors of that particular message. They're uncomfortable being quiet about it. One of the things that marked uh, this early group of people that started following Jesus that I honestly think as I, as I kind of like look around, it's not the reputation, I don't think followers of Jesus have today, but one of the things that marked them at the beginning was people were convinced they had a lot of messiness in their life, they had a lot of brokenness, they had a lot they still feel guilt and shame over, but the story of Jesus has changed them. And so on the streets and in their living locations and wherever they're at work, they're talking about Jesus. I think one of the, uh, the characterizations that Christians can have today, and, and I understand it, I think it's fair, for people to look at Christians and then make this kind of accusation is that Christianity is kind of for religious elite or at least people who morally feel better than everybody else. But what marked this group of people here in the beginning was they were convinced they were broken and they were convinced Jesus had something to say about that. 
And so very quickly, this message is multiplying and it's going to new places because it's broken people talking about a really good God and that's starting to spread. So they're saying, man, I love you and I want this for you, not from my high horse, here's what you need as a part of your life, but there's something in Jesus that has changed me and I want that for you. And what's interesting is this spread is happening despite massive opposition. These new followers of Jesus, they're they're all in Jerusalem where this happens, and they're becoming so transformed, and it's so fresh, their understanding of Jesus is so clear, like who he is, what he's done, that it's changing them, but the opposition is really strong, and so it's really pushing them out of their homes. In fact, if you claim to be a follower of Jesus here in these early days, you were then going to be hunted, men, women, and children. They would figure out what you believed about Jesus and then enter into your homes, drag you into the streets, beat you, imprison you, sometimes publicly kill you. This is what it meant to be a follower of Jesus here in the early days. They did this because they wanted to stop this movement. But interestingly enough, all it did was accelerate the movement because you're taking these followers of Jesus, you're pushing them out of their homes, so they're going into new places, living in new homes, except they're not going empty-handed. They're now going with this message of Jesus, and so the intent to slow down this movement is actually the cause of rapidly expanding it. It's going to new places. And one of the places it gets to is a location called Samaria, and Samaria is where I really want to bring us here this morning. It's in Acts 8, if you have a Bible and are interested in following along. Uh, Acts 8, you can find in the back of a Bible Table of contents, feel free to go there as well. As always, if you don't have a Bible, there's a really nice man named Harrison out by the Connect table who would hand you not only one, he might even throw an extra in there uh, for free 99, as we say. Uh, Doesn't cost anything. Uh, So you you can have a Bible. If you want to follow along and are interested in that, Acts 8 is where we're going to be. Now, this is starting to spread geographically, and one of the things we talked about last week is it's actually starting to cross ethnic boundaries as well, which is a really good thing because this message was never intended to have limits on it. It was never intended to create hurdles or boundaries. This was for everybody to have, regardless of background, ethnicity, and geographic location, and this is really starting to happen in the book of Acts. This is the kind of situation, explosive growth and expansion that was always part of the process from the beginning. And if you'll remember, if you were around for this, one of the first messages we spoke in this series was in Acts chapter 1, and it was really Jesus' intent that what would start in Jerusalem would slowly make its way through Judea and Samaria and ultimately to the ends of the earth. And where I want to bring you this morning is really a fulfillment of what Jesus' intention was. We're going to Samaria. This was always part of the plan in Acts 8. Now, I want to bring you into a story and talk about a particular person that I think uh, is super common today. And I think it's really Uh, groundbreaking and shaking, could be for a lot of us in the room. So Acts 8, uh, I'm going to start reading in verse 9. Here's what it says. A man named Simon had been a sorcerer there for many years, amazing the people of Samaria and claiming to be somebody great. Now, every time somebody claims to be great, I think it's like a follow-up, like, are they or are they their own biggest fan? 
Uh, Verse 10 kind of gives us a window. Everybody from the least to the greatest often spoke of him as the great one, the power of God. He's important. Verse 11, they listened closely to him because for a long time he had astounded them with his magic. But now the people believed Philip's message of good news concerning the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ. As a result, many men and women were baptized. Shout out to our baptism services coming up. Then, verse 13, Simon himself believed and was baptized. Another shout out to our baptism services coming up. This is what happens. You become a follower of Jesus. They're getting baptized right away. He began following Philip wherever he went, and he was amazed by the signs and great miracles Philip performed. So you have this guy named Simon who's doing some some wild stuff. He's creating for himself a pretty big name because he has some unexplained power that nobody else has, and it's pretty amazing. He's not only amazing people, he's amazing himself, and he's doing what nobody else can do. And so he has the attention of Samaria. This is where he lives, and he's a big deal. He has their attention. He has following. Until the message of Jesus arrives, and now Simon's becoming less and less of a big deal, and now Jesus is becoming more and more of a big deal. This is creating an issue for him. And so he's intrigued. Verse 14, when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that the people of Samaria had accepted God's message, they sent Peter and John there. As soon as they arrived, they prayed for these new believers to receive the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit had not yet come upon any of them, for they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John laid their hands upon these believers, and they received the Holy Spirit. When Simon saw that the Spirit was given... When the apostles laid their hands on people, he offered them money to buy this power. He wants in on this. Let me have this power too, he exclaimed, so that when I lay my hands on people, they will receive the Holy Spirit. So he's watching. He's in a particular city where he's got a big name. He's got a following. He is somebody of prominence And then this message of Jesus starts landing, and people are now getting all stirred up to follow Jesus and not him. And so he's like, man, what's going on? He's watching his city turn completely upside down with followers of Jesus. And this is a guy whose identity is about having power that other people don't have. And so you can understand his issue here. If his identity is having power that other people don't have, and all of a sudden there's this supernatural power that's descending upon the city, he's got to do something about it. Identity is coming crashing down. They're not impressed with him because more people have power. And so he's like, how do I get this? I've got some money. I just want to get in on the power game so that my identity can stay what it is. I don't know how you feel about UFC, uh, but I like the UFC. Um, if you don't even know what that is, it's MMA, another three-letter thing that you also might not know what that is, but uh, it's ultimately, it's fighting. And uh, I remember years ago, uh, there was a big fight from a fighter that I really liked. They, they had just been mowing through competition. In fact, in their last fight, they won so easily that really the world is like, I, we don't even know, it's dangerous to put another human being in there. It's like we don't have anybody else who can sign up to fight this particular person, largely considered the best to ever do it, and they were still in their prime. 
And I remember this build up with their next fight. It's like, I don't know, I guess this person just like throw them in there and some crazy person signed up. Like, I think I can win. Uh, and so they put them in there and to shock the world, this underdog knocks out the champ. And I remember watching the champ kind of wake up from the mat, ultimately not get their hand raised in like some dejected and discouraged look as they kind of staggered their way to the locker room. I heard an interview about a year later and this particular fighter said, as she got to the locker room, the only thing going through her mind was, who am I now? Like I was a person who was the best. I was a person who's undefeated. Everything I have, not only in career, but in identity and family and relationships, every social outlet I have, I am this particular person with this particular identity. And in one kick, it all gets taken away. She talks about coming to and thinking for weeks, like, like how do I just end my life? Because if I'm not that, then who am I? My identity is so wrapped up in this particular thing, and now somebody else is seen as better, so who am I? This is Simon's situation. I am the one who has power nobody else has, and now that's changing. And if that's changing, is my value and my worth and my importance and my significance changing too? I think it's likely common that Many of us are putting our identity in some like pretty flimsy things. Like if you need to be the best mom in your social circle, then anytime that's threatened, you got to at least tear some people down or talk yourself up because if you're not the best mom, then who are you? If you're not the best salesman, if you're not the best in your career, if you're not the best spouse, you need that. You need to maintain it because if your identity's there and somehow somebody replaces that, then your value and your worth and your significance, that's all at play. And so you got to do some radical things to maintain the identity. This is a serious situation. It's not just career for Simon. Everything can come torn down, can come tearing down if he's no longer the person that has power. And so he sees some power and he's like, I got to get in on this because who am I without it? Verse 20, but Peter replied, May your money be destroyed with you for thinking God's gift can be bought. You can have no part in this for your heart is not right with God. Repent of your wickedness and pray to the Lord. Perhaps he will forgive your evil thoughts for I can see that you are full of bitter jealousy and are held captive by sin. Pray to the Lord for me, Simon explained, that these terrible things you've said won't happen to me. After testifying and preaching the word of the Lord in Samaria, Peter and John returned to Jerusalem, and they stopped in many Samaritan villages along the way to preach the good news. Now, there's a guy named Peter who's a pretty prominent character in a lot of important parts of your Bible, and he says some pretty harsh and some things that might feel a little bit overstated to Simon, but I want to show you how he got there. Because this feels like a pretty strong response from somebody to a guy who's just looking to kind of save some identity. I want to show you how he got there. Peter was a close friend and follower of Jesus, but he also wasn't a guy who was free of mistakes. Peter's a guy with a pretty significant past, a pretty significant history. In fact, one of the most prominent public 
and embarrassing sins ever committed in the pages of your Bible was by this guy named Peter. In fact, not long before this moment when he confronts Simon, not long before this, Peter said to Jesus, right to his face, listen, anything that comes into my life, I'm not worried about it. I'm ride or die. I'm with you to the end. If that means persecution, if that means me being killed, I don't care. I'm with you. And then very publicly, he denies and betrays Jesus. I want to bring you to a moment in Luke 22. Just a couple sentences that give us a little bit of a window into what goes on in this failure. By the way, every time I, I look at something like this, I think uh, it would be a bummer for millions of people throughout history to be able to be brought into a window of our greatest failure. Um, and yet God saw that fitting. I think it's very helpful to look at this, even though that's the last thing I want is even a book about my greatest failures, let alone the, the book that's been most sold in history. But, but here, here's a moment. Jesus is being whipped on his way to be crucified. Peter has just betrayed him in a big crowd very publicly. It says, Jesus turned and looked straight at Peter, and then Peter remembered the the word the Lord had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows today, you will disown me three times, and he went outside and wept bitterly. This, This moment is like a nightmare. Not only has he done what is creating the most shame of anything he's ever done in his life. Not only does he know that, but there's a moment in the midst of Jesus being beaten and him betraying Jesus where they make eye contact. So he knows, not only do I know I've just created the biggest mistake of my life, but now I know that Jesus knows I've done that too. And he gets to such a low place, he hits rock bottom that he goes out, he weeps bitterly. He's absolutely at rock bottom, but this isn't the end of the story of Peter. Peter actually believes some things about Jesus that's good news for somebody who's hit rock bottom. I think it is a gift of God and a kindness of God to push some of us to rock bottom because Jesus looks pretty good for somebody at the bottom and he looks largely unimpressive to somebody who's impressed with themselves. And so through the kindness of Jesus, Peter gets to rock bottom. And yet he knows some things about his friend Jesus. He knows some things about who he is and what he's up to that creates a different pathway for Peter than just shame and guilt and an unending pouting of what's happened in his life. He had to believe some things about Jesus. He had to believe that he's never too far gone in his lowest and darkest, loneliest moments and mistakes. He's never too far gone. He's never too far from God. He isn't too dirty. He's not too unworthy. He'll never be so good that he doesn't need Jesus. He'll never be so bad that he can't have him. Peter had to believe in the lowest moments that he is never too far gone. That's what he believed about Jesus. He had to believe that Jesus is eager to extend grace. The nickname Jesus gets is the friend of sinners. That's good news. Like he doesn't begrudgingly give grace. He doesn't roll his eyes. He doesn't ask what's wrong with you or how you could continue to make bad choices. He just begs people, hand me your sin. I know you mess up. I know you make mistakes. I know you feel shame. I know you feel guilt. I know you don't want a magnifying glass on the worst decisions of your life. Just hand me that. I'll take it. He had to believe that Jesus is eager to extend grace. He had to believe that Jesus loves him 
and wants him. And that Jesus' love isn't dependent upon performance. And thank goodness it's not dependent upon performance because Peter would have fallen out of that relationship a long time ago like those of us in this room. He loves Peter and Peter can't change that. He, He wants relationship with Peter. He doesn't want a future version of him. He doesn't want a cleaner version of him. He doesn't want him when he's figured everything all out and finally started making better decisions. He just loves him now. And he wants him now. He loves him and wants him in his lowest place and in his greatest mistakes. He had to believe that Jesus loves him and wants him as he is. What's interesting about this moment is that Peter says some pretty strong things to Simon, but it doesn't come from a place of judgment. It comes from a place of transformation. Peter had a relationship with Jesus that allowed him to respond strongly, to say, listen, there's an invitation on the table for you. And if you're saying no to this full invitation, it's got to be because you don't understand. Because listen to my story. Peter's history is one that he would not want to get up and talk about publicly. He's done some things that he would not want a lot of people to know. He has done some things that people would whisper behind his back about how they'd never do that kind of thing, about how ridiculous that is. This is his story. And yet he knows a Jesus and he knows a message that has totally changed everything. And so when he extends that invitation to Simon the magician, and Simon's answer to be not, yes, give me Jesus, it's like, I think there are some advantageous things about Jesus, and I think there are some things about Jesus that I can just leave on the table. No, no, Peter responds strongly because he's like, listen to my story. Here's the invitation. Listen to what Jesus has done for me and means for me. I want that for you as well. Now, while, while trying to pay money to receive the power of God is, is likely not what you've done as you've come into this room, I, I do think it's fair to say that Simon the Magician in many ways stands for a lot of us. I actually think coming in here, a lot of us should relate pretty closely with Simon the Magician. And and what I mean by that is this is the idea of taking parts of Jesus that seem advantageous and leaving parts of Jesus that you feel like take from you. And I think this is wildly common. I think most common for us today is we want to take the Jesus where he pays the price for my sin, but I want to leave the Jesus who creates lifestyle change in me. I'm thrilled to give Jesus the cross, but I want to hesitate on giving him the crown. I want dead Jesus. I don't want on the throne Jesus. I want some of them, but I want to leave on the table other parts of them. Now, I I grew up in a home where I was the youngest of four kids. Shout out to anybody who's the youngest in the family. Um, We have it the worst and harder than everybody else. And if you're an older sibling, I just don't even want to hear it. Um, I've heard like, oh, you know, mom and dad were so much easier on you. And it's like, yeah, and I had multiple mom and dads. So they had to be easier on me because I also had three moms and two dads uh, that functionally were just siblings, but they just thought they were in control of me. So shout out if you're the youngest. I'm with you. I see you. I hear you. Uh, I was the youngest. And in my particular home, everybody older than me, siblings, parents, Uh, from as far back as I can remember, we're living a Christian lifestyle. And so my proximity uh, to Christianity was super close. 
But I also had proximity to people who weren't followers of Jesus. In fact, up until college, I did not have a friend that would claim Christianity or following Jesus at all. And to be honest with you, I got to a point in my life where I was convinced of the messiness in my life. I was convinced of my mistakes. I was convinced of the standard of God that I didn't reach to. And I felt like I needed Jesus But at the same time, I wasn't convinced that I actually wanted the Christian lifestyle. I had seen the Christian lifestyle, and I'd seen the non-Christian lifestyle, and that other lifestyle just seemed more attractive to me. And I lived around people who weren't Christians, and it was like, man, if I can play this right, I can get Jesus eternally, I can get forgiveness of sins, Jesus, and then I can actually leave on the table lifestyle change, Jesus, I don't actually want to give Jesus a crown. I'm happy to give him a cross. Pay for my sin. Let me live my own lifestyle. This was the sweet spot for me. If I could just figure out how to play in both camps, that would be great. Because the, the question I battled constantly was, is Jesus worth what I feel like I have to give up? Because for me, Christianity felt like it came with a lot of loss. Like, sure, there was some gain. I get that but I've got to like die to everything that looks exciting and fun. And it it seems like this lifestyle is going to be far more abundance than the Christian lifestyle. And so like I want Jesus because I'm convinced I need him for my future. I don't really want Jesus as it relates to right now because he takes from me. He doesn't give to me. So I constantly battled this question. Is he worth what I feel like I'm giving up? I knew he was my best decision for my future. I wasn't convinced he was the best decision for right now. Honestly, I didn't want to be a Christian. I just felt like I had to be a Christian because I was convinced of sin and I was convinced I needed him. I wanted forgiving Jesus. I didn't want ruling Jesus. I wanted cross Jesus, not crown Jesus. I wanted Jesus to belong to me, not me belong to Jesus. And the tragedy of Simon's story and so many of our stories is When we see Jesus and what comes with Jesus really clearly, we actually see more and more and more that all of Jesus is good news. There's not parts of Jesus that are good news and then parts of Christianity that's a bummer and you just have to suffer through, but at least you get heaven at the end of the day. This is not the Jesus that Peter knew. This is not the Jesus that transformed Peter, so much so that he wanted it so bad for Simon that when he rejected the offer, he's like, no, no, let's be serious about what this offer is. Because if you want parts of Jesus and not all of Jesus, that's not because you're seeing clearly, that's because you don't yet know all of Jesus. You don't yet know all that he brings to the table. This is not just stopping having premarital sex and stop watching certain movies and now there's fun words you can't say anymore. This is actually a step towards abundant life. In fact, one of our values as a church is something we call becoming. And one of the things we value here and one of the things we say about our values is that we believe the pathway to a flourishing life is becoming more like Jesus. As crazy as this may sound, we're convinced that the more like Jesus you become, the more you step into abundant life, not the more Jesus takes from you. And so we value anything that we can do that would create more Jesus-like things in our life. Like anything I can do that can make me more like Jesus at the end of the day, I want to sign up for 
I want to stumble forward to more and more surrender myself into the image of Jesus. And I'm going to screw that up and I'm going to have to wake up and try it again. But I'm convinced the more like Jesus I become, the more I step into abundant life. And this is not an opinion of mine. The words of Jesus in John 10, he has recorded himself saying, I have come not just to forgive sins, not just to give heaven, not just to teach some good stuff and to heal some people. He says he's come to give life and life abundantly. He's come to forgive sins, yes, and amen. We're gonna sing about that and teach about that and celebrate that. In fact, next week in baptisms, that's one of the main things we're celebrating. What we know about Jesus is just not parts of Jesus are worth celebrating and then other parts of Jesus are worth mourning. We're convinced that all of Jesus becoming more like him in my relationship to my wife is the pathway to an abundant life today. Becoming more like Jesus in how I treat my kids is the pathway to an abundant life today. Becoming more like Jesus in how I use my money and my time, how I respond to frustration and criticism, how I do my job, how I treat people who are like me and unlike me, and on and on we can go. The more I can step into the image of Jesus, the more I step into abundant life. He doesn't come with some good and some bad. He doesn't come with heaven and then a life you have to suffer through. He comes with abundant life here and eternally. And that's not to say that life gets great when you follow Jesus. In fact, the story of Peter, even from this moment, is not one that many would claim is abundant life, but he would. Peter, because of what he believes about Jesus, ultimately gets crucified and they put him upside down as he gets crucified. He's whipped and every single person that claimed Christianity, that was a close friend and follower of Jesus, gets killed at the end of their life because they were so convinced that Jesus is only good news. He's not some good news and some bad news. He's not, you can take some and you can leave some. There isn't a sweet spot of take my sin, but let me sit on the throne. If that's the Jesus you know, if that's the Jesus you're excited about, you're gonna find him to ultimately be frustrating, limiting, and annoying. I don't know if you've ever tried to like share a seat with somebody and you don't quite fit, but that's gonna get annoying pretty quick. And I think a lot of us just like try and wave Jesus on the throne of our own life and just try and slide over a little bit and then you're gonna be frustrated. He's gonna press on things that are important to you. He's gonna wanna change some things that feel comfortable right now. He's gonna want you to do some things that don't come natural. And yet, cross Jesus is not just good news. Crown Jesus is good news as well. The tragedy of Simon's story is he didn't quite see all of Jesus. He wanted forgiveness of sins, but he just wanted some more power. He didn't want Jesus to be supreme. He kind of wanted to be there too. And so Peter entered in, pressed on it in an attempt to just pull him into abundant life. Pull him not only into forgiveness of sins, but into a better life here and now. And that's not circumstantial. But an identity that's not flimsy, 
an identity that we can't put you in a room where now you feel insecure and you feel less worthy. I think it's likely all of us, if we said, who are you actually at your core? There might be some impressive things about you, but I think it's likely that we could put you in a particular room where you start to feel not important anymore. Where you start to feel like, I don't know if I have a lot of worth and value because in this circle I mean this, but in this circle I'm not all that important anymore. This is an identity we don't want for you because Jesus provides an identity that's not flimsy, that can't be taken in other rooms. He calls you child. He says, that's the one I want. Not a future version, not a cleaned up version. I know you to the bottom. I know your mistakes. I know your failure. I know everything you feel shame about and I want you and I love you. This is the message of Jesus that transforms Samaria on its way out to the ends of the earth. I think Simon the magician is not somebody that feels like us and yet at the same time is us. We just naturally want some things and not others. I I want you, if I'm honest, to follow Jesus to heaven. I do want that. I also want you to follow Jesus to life today. I, I also want that for you. Not because I'm concerned about this city having more religious people and more morally upright people or more people who sit on a high horse and want all these rules and regulations for other people they're not like. That's not why. I'm unconcerned about creating a church that stirs up a lot of people who look sometimes like Christians. We are concerned about creating followers of Jesus who are made right with God and then stumble violently and aggressively stumble their way forward to look more like him because they're convinced this is the pathway to abundant life. The more I can look like him, the better it's gonna be for my soul. Not the more made right I'm gonna be with God, not the easier my life is gonna get, but the more joy I'm gonna find in life, the more peace I'm gonna have, the more contentment and satisfaction and fulfillment I am going to have now what nobody and nothing can steal from me. This is what comes with Jesus, not just forgiveness of sins. All of him is good news, not some of them. Um, Let me ask God that despite all of our thoughts and feelings and history and background and baggage and all of that, he would actually convince us here this morning that everything that comes with Jesus is good news. Let me pray and ask God to do that for us. Father, it is um, hard to believe. It's hard to believe. At times for us who make decisions about our own life, who make decisions every single day about what we think is gonna lead us into happiness. It's hard to believe that a surrender to become more like Jesus, a surrender into the image of Jesus is actually good news for us. It's hard to believe that lifestyle change and radical moves maybe in our life today would be better for us. God, you're gonna have to convince us. You're gonna have to allow your power to change us, allow us to be people like the dad in Mark 9 who can say, man, I believe that, And at the same time, you're going to have to help my unbelief because I'm convinced. I'm convinced so often that I know the pathway to life. God, humble us. Convince us 
that Jesus comes with full good news, that you're worthy to be trusted eternally and you're actually worthy to be trusted today. You're worthy to hold my sin and to hold my eternity and you're also worthy to hold the little things in my life today. God, we need you. And we wanna be people who celebrate and stumble forward in our relationship with you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.